0: Last week we discussed some of the history of hermeneutics, and we basically did a brief flyover. It's a little difficult to do in a 45, we had about 45 minutes to do it, but the relevance of it is uh, there's a real payoff, as we saw, because it shows us just how practical our interpretation of the Bible is and how it brings to bear on our life, on our ministry on the condition of the church. We said that, and we saw from history, how the church interprets the Bible today will determine the condition of the church tomorrow. And so this is not a theoretical ivory tower kind of stuff. This is very practical. So we were surveying the history of how men have interpreted the Bible, and as we did so, we saw a variety of approaches in history. Uh, By way of review, just a couple questions, because we didn't get to take the quiz at the end of our last lecture. How did Jesus interpret the scriptures? Literally, okay? Jesus interprets the scriptures literally. We see him understanding the, or or rather even assuming the historical truth of the biblical narratives of the Old Testament. And we spent some time discussing the apostles followed suit. The apostles also interpreted the scriptures literally, although we did mention there are cases where they take what's called a typological approach to certain passages, and there's going to be reasons for that. Uh, They noticed patterns and types in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus, but we'll kind of unpack that a little bit more as we get into what a literal approach to the Bible should look like. Let me ask you this. What were the two schools of interpretation in the early church, and what did they emphasize? Does anybody remember there were two schools, one in the east part of the empire one in the west part of the empire? The Alexandrian school in the west in in Egypt is a very Hellenized center of learning. And what did they emphasize there? Following the, the Greek method allegory. Yeah, they took an allegorical approach which meant they were looking for a deeper meaning in the Bible. And that created all kinds of problems. For Clement of Alexandria, it was two meanings in the Bible. The literal and the allegorical uh, origin taught three meanings for every text. Then we saw John Cassian comes along in like the fourth century, and he says there's a fourfold meaning of the text, and the Catholic Church would take that as their standard approach to the Bible. So you wonder why there was such a lack of good biblical exposition. Well, that's partly why. It was the fourfold approach to the scriptures that God never intended. Well, what was the other school of interpretation in the in the ancient world, in the early church. So we had Alexandrian school, Alexandria, Egypt. And then in the east, in Syria, does anybody know a very well-known church at the time? Paul was there. Peter was there. The church of Antioch. Church of, who is it? <laughs> Antioch, yes. So the Antiochian, or, or uh, I think it would just be easier to say the school of Antioch, uh, they took a literal approach to scripture and of course you can always find exceptions but I'm just saying even in the early church we see this sort of a uh, of a conflict there are different approaches to the bible moving on we we said the reformation was essentially a reformation of biblical what the reformation Martin Luther John Calvin all these guys coming back to the bible was essentially a reformation of biblical hermeneutics it was it was a a, coming back to the text the way that the apostles and the early church at least those in Antioch approached the text and letting the Bible speak for itself well before I go on I recognize I want to pray uh, before our study so let me do that and then we're gonna let me just finish up what we didn't get to in our study of history and then we're going to examine the qualifications of a good interpreter according to the Bible Lord, we just ask your help this morning as we jump into a study of how to interpret your word. We want to be better students of your word. We want to be responsible, uh, good stewards of the revelation that you have made available to us. We recognize there are people around this world as we speak that do not have a copy of the scriptures in their own native tongue. And so, God, what a shame it would be to us if we did not do everything we could. Uh, You who have given us this Holy Spirit, you who have given us all the graces of life that we need, that pertain to life and godliness, if we did not take seriously a study of your word. So help us to be better interpreters of your word, that we would be more like Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when we left off last week, we had been discussing the modern period, and we were discussing how, through Enlightenment thinking, you had naturalism creeping in, Uh, which was the denial of anything supernatural, the denial of miracles, hence the denial of Jesus. Any of the miracles Jesus did, they said, well, that just couldn't happen. Really, naturalism says that if there is a God, he's outside of the system. The universe is a closed system. If God created the box, like the deist said, he can't stick his hand into it. That's it. God just winds up the clock and lets it run down. He has nothing to do with it. But if you read the Bible with that assumption... That's going to change the way you look at the text. If you go to a secular university or you listen to people like Bart Ehrman, New Testament scholar, right, they're going to interpret the Bible through that grid. And this kind of thinking we see becoming a precedent in the Enlightenment period. It's not just naturalism, relativism, but the subjectivism too. And We said this is this idea we see in the 18th century where truth is being redefined as subject to me subject to what I think, what I feel. So here is where our culture got so messed up, right? The beginning of this modern world or postmodern world is with this redefinition of truth. No longer is it defined by the absolute, infinite, eternal God, and truth is something that is as immutable as God himself because it is a characteristic of God, but truth is now subject to me, the creature. And this would lead to liberalism as we know it in the churches, in the Christian seminaries and such. And so we have people cutting things out of the Bible. In the subjectivism I mentioned, there was uh, theologians like Frederick Schleiermacher who was saying, religion is a feeling of the heart. And we're all like, oh, that sounds so nice, right? But now we have all these churches that say, look, it doesn't matter whether Jesus rose again. It doesn't really matter if there's anything historical there or what that means. What matters is all that means to you. Because religion is just—it's just about you—and what was what was all this doing? This subjectivism—it was basically saying, "I myself am the highest authority. I preside over the text." That—that that was the approach to scripture that's generated. And so, there's, it's no coincidence. So I want you to understand that in the last couple centuries, there's been an explosion of cults and charismaticism, which I'm just basically labeling under this broad title, sensationalism. <laughs> All kinds of things happening in the name of biblical doctrine that really do not have a biblical basis. And you can study that. In fact, I have a number of different books on cults, and it's interesting how many cults came out of the 19th century. You see, how did that happen? Because of all the twisted approaches to interpreting the Bible. And so this is a, there's a connection here, I'm saying. This is very practical. Now, we might observe... And by the way, I'd like to say a lot more about this, but I want to focus more today on the qualifications of a good interpreter. So we'll just say that as we summarize this survey of history from last week, that we see there's generally two ways of approaching the Bible. There's a subjective, allegorical approach, and there's an objective, literal approach. That is, on the one hand, we see people all over the world coming to the Bible, and they are looking beneath the text. They are looking uh, above the text. They are looking down on the text. They are looking through the text. And we could say in each one of these approaches, you know, maybe it's, it's, they're coming to the Bible simply for pragmatism, for what they want, right? They're coming to the Bible to convince them of what they already want to do or such. Um, they're coming to the Bible as simply a piece of artwork or something, right? But they're completely above the text. In whatever the case, there is a subjective approach to interpreting the Bible, which is not really concerned with what the text says itself. And we see that pattern throughout history. On the other hand, there is this, there has been a faithful approach of God's faithful people throughout the years, which is an objective, literal approach, and it's simply an approach that, uh, I realize this might sound overly simplistic, but it's the approach, it's the heart that says, when I come to the Bible, what is in the text? What does the text say to me? And receiving the word with humility. And so I think we see this conflict. The subjective approach reads meaning into the text by appealing to anything other than the text itself and uh, the, the literal, grammatical historical approach sees uh, that the text is itself the authority. So there's a world of a difference between those two approaches. So we've begun with a biblical basis to hermeneutics and then we've I've seen a brief history of hermeneutics, but as a matter of final business before exploring the principles, the actual how to interpret the Bible, right, by way of introduction, we want to see the interpreter himself. Something should be said for the interpreter himself. We don't come to the Bible as a perfectly blank slate, do we? We come to the Bible... With our presuppositions, we come to the Bible with a certain set of capabilities. We come to the Bible with a certain attitude. Nobody can study the Bible in a vacuum. right? You can't divorce yourself from the text. So that is a reality. And so something should be said for the interpreter. And I want us to see what the Bible has to say about the qualifications then for being a good interpreter. What does the Bible require for an interpreter? Well, I'm going to give you eight things. From Scripture, And I think the first doesn't really go without saying, <laughs> but that is literacy. If you're going to be a good interpreter of the Bible, you must be literate. Wherever Christianity has spread, it's no coincidence that it has always influenced civilization by spreading literacy. And that is because we, as Christians, we study the Bible, we recognize language itself as the gift of God. And God has revealed himself propositionally with the word. The Logos. This is God's design. Revelation 1-3. And by the way, in your outline you'll see there I have uh, certain references. There's a number of different references we could look at, but I put at least one under each one of these points. Revelation 1-3, John says this. Blessed is he. This is the very final book of the Bible. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads. Well, you are blessed if you read the word of God. That is a blessing. There are people that certainly don't, and they are not better off for it. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks, those who are asking him questions, have you not read? That's important. Somebody comes to Jesus, Luke chapter 10, asks him a question. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How does it read? you got to read the Bible. Now, I think it's fair to say, if you're taking this course, that you read, all right? You have an understanding. You are literate, but there's a difference between being able to read and being an able reader. All of us can grow in our ability to read. If you doubt that, just read the book, How to Read a Book, and I know that raises a a kind of a paradox, right? How can I read a book that's teaching me how to read? Well, you can actually gain a lot from it. In fact, maybe more Practical for you would be to engage in like a book study. Like that's what our church is doing Wednesday. The part of the reason for that, we started a book study, is we want to teach our people not just to read, we know how to read, but we want to be able readers. We want to be uh, reading well and understand what we're reading. So when we come to the Bible, obviously we must read. That just doesn't go without saying, but it is the first qualification. the second qualification for a good interpreter is a regenerate nature. Here's a question for you. Can non believers understand the scriptures? I see no. Somebody's saying no. I mean, I mean what's that? They can just be closed Okay, I mean, does everybody know some? Uh, m- maybe you know, when you, before you were a believer, you could read the scriptures. Certainly, there were a lot of things you could understand, right? Or you talk with uh, somebody who's an atheist and somebody who's of another religion, and they're talking about the Bible. There's, there are there not things that they can understand from Scripture. Well, certainly there are. Right. Um, again, if you can be literate, you could you could explain, you could articulate the meaning of a lot of things in Scripture. First Corinthians chapter two. Once you go there, if you're not there, that's the next reference I have here under a regenerate nature. It's true that that. Anyone can read the Bible and understand a lot of things about it, but the Bible itself is clear that to really understand God, we need a change of nature, and to understand this book, to know this book, you must know its author. That is, if you're going to know it in the sense, in a saving sense, like Paul describes in Second uh, Timothy three fifteen to Timothy. So, here, listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church, First Corinthians two. Verse 14, he says, but a natural man, now what's a natural man? That is the man left to himself without God, without any supernatural influence. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. Well, you yeah, have from the Bible. God's saying he cannot understand. Not not everything, not anything, but but in this essential sense he cannot understand them these things of the spirit of god including the scriptures what god has said because they are spiritually appraised He goes on to say but he who is spiritual the one who has the spirit that's clear in the context appraises all things yet he himself is appraised by no one and i believe the sense there is he's saying uh, if you have the spirit you'll understand all things but you won't be understood by people without the spirit And then he says, for who has known the mind of Christ, verse 16, the mind of the Lord, that uh, he will instruct him. That's a citation from Isaiah. But we have the mind of Christ. Man, who can know the things of the infinite almighty God? Well, we have the mind of God in Christ. God who came into this world and has given us his own spirit. Part of regeneration is, is this idea. God makes us alive by putting his own spirit within us. And so if you read uh, even the, the text before that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see that the things that are unseen, the things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the mind or heart of man, those are the things that God is revealing to us by his spirit. It's amazing. So we can, we can say, if we want to be a good interpreter of the Bible, then we need a regenerate nature. We actually do need, a connection with God, and the scriptures talk a lot about that. Okay, A third thing the Bible talks about with regards to being a a good interpreter of the word is a high view of scripture. A high view of scripture. If you want to be a good interpreter of scripture, you need a high view of it. Now, why do we need a high view of scripture in order to properly interpret the Bible? Well... We might say, first of all, if the Bible is indeed a high and holy book, that would simply mean uh, if I'm going to properly understand it, then I need a view of it that corresponds to reality. But we need a high view of Scripture because wrong premises will guide wrong conclusions. That is, our view of Scripture will invariably color our interpretation of the book. This is what I'm saying, too, is when I come to the Bible, I can't study it in a vacuum. If I have a low view of Scripture, my presuppositions, what I take to the text, is going to affect what I get out of it, the meaning that I find in Scripture. Liberal scholars interpreting Paul and James, for instance, in Romans chapter 3, James chapter 2, they're going to tell you that these guys were in total contradiction to each other. Why? Because in their view, Christianity was some hodgepodge collection of things, and, and uh, you know Jesus taught something entirely different. Paul and Peter, they're, they're t- teaching two totally different cults. Now, you don't believe that if you're a Christian because you have the understanding that these men were apostles. They were directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. These men don't believe that. They don't have a high view of God, a high view of Christ, a high view of the Scriptures, and that does inevitably affect their view, their interpretation of Scripture. I want to give you a good example of a high view of Scripture that the Bible commends in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, another reference there in your outline. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this: For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You didn't receive these words as the words of men, but as the words of God. Do you? When you open your Bible in the morning, when you come to your Bible to study, when you come to church to hear the word of God preached, do you listen to it as the words of men, simply, or even as the words of God? We know God used men to write these words. The Bible itself doesn't dispute that. But the idea is that God is the source. God is the source, inspiring, breathing these very things. Do we believe that? If we did, James chapter 1, would be true. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Are you willing to set yourself at the mercy of the text and say, God, whatever you show me, this book is so high and holy, your words are so high and holy, whatever you show me, I will do. I really believe if you don't come to the text with that attitude, guess what? You're not going to get out of it what God wants you to get out of it. Because your attitude, your view of the scriptures matters. It directly relates to the meaning that you find in the text. And going back to the whole regenerate nature deal, you see, non-believers can understand intellectually a lot of times what the text is saying. But when we talk about Holy Spirit illumination, and sort of getting ahead of myself talk about the Holy Spirit, but we're talking about it takes a right view of scripture, it takes God himself, it takes a regenerate nature For a sinner like us to really grasp the significance of what we're reading. That's the difference. Not simply articulating the the objective. Oh, here's the objective meaning. It means this. What does that mean to you? What's the significance of that, though? How does it impact your life? Of course, if we come with a high view of scripture, we will have the same attitude as David in Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So we need a high view of Scripture if we're going to properly interpret these words of God. A fourth qualification from the Scriptures for a good interpreter of Scripture is dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now we tend to talk about dependence upon the Holy Spirit almost like it's a cliche at times. You know, what does it actually mean? We must be careful to realize that when we come to the Bible, it's not simply An intellectual exercise that's to take place where I am to put into practice all of the hermeneutical methods I've studied. I mean, you could be a great uh, hermeneut, okay? You could be be, uh, well-studied, have gone to seminary and done all that, and yet, if you come to the Bible simply dependent upon yourself, not with a view of faith to God, not desperate in your heart, Lord, teach me. I believe with that lack of humility, you're going to miss something. That God wants you to receive, why and how is that? well he is the author of scripture the Holy Spirit is the one who authors scripture second peter one nineteen through twenty one he's the teacher who illumines the meaning of christ's words john fourteen twenty six and he is the guide for understanding scripture john sixteen thirteen here 's the reference I believe I have in your outline Jesus said this to his disciples before he leaves i 'm going away he says, but when he The Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, he will disclose it to you what is to come. So, what does this look like? What is Jesus saying the Holy Spirit is going to do for us as his people in this age? Well, I don't know how many of you are into art. I I do like art. Uh, Not all forms of art are equally amusing to me, but if you don't study art, you can walk into an art museum and you might feel totally lost, right? And there might be some things you're like, okay, I can appreciate that. And then you're going to walk through the corridors and the, down some other hallways. You're going to think, what on earth? What was somebody on when they did this? And, you know, what, what really ha- would help is if you had a tour guide who would walk you through, take you by the hand, and basically just explain to you the meaning, the significance of everything. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes us down the corridors of His Word, and we might be able to by ourselves understand what some things mean and all that, but it's the Holy Spirit we need to really unfold to us the significance of what we're seeing. And maybe you, brother or sister, can remember a time in your life where you had a hard heart, and it was kind of like the rain was just glancing right off your hard heart like glancing off of a stone and then suddenly something happened and really it was the holy spirit working in your life and he broke your heart with something you heard from the word of god something you read from the word of god and suddenly it was like rain on an open field just saturating you i mean i can identify with that i know there's times in my life where the bible just glanced off me and then there's other times where he goes and, and right into me and through me and everything. And I mean, that's, that's what we need. And that's the Holy Spirit's ministry. You want to be a good interpreter of the word of God? You need the Holy Spirit to wield the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians six seventeen, and use it on your life. Now, let me just add this. The Holy Spirit does not do the work of studying Scripture for us. Okay, so it's not, oh, I have the Holy Spirit, so I don't need to study the Word. Some guys that are in the Assemblies of God Pentecostal Movement feel it's like a badge of honor. I've never been to seminary, and they're a preacher, and I cringe when I hear that, because I think, oh, so you feel like the Holy Spirit's an excuse that you don't need to study God's Word? The Holy Spirit does not replace diligent study of God's words. The Holy Spirit does not circumvent my understanding. God doesn't bypass our brains, because he created our brains. He's a rational God, and so he is intending to to work through our human faculties, not mystically around them, and he doesn't create new meaning in the text. He's going to, like Jesus even said, he's going to speak of what God has said. He's going to bring to mind what God has said. So sometimes people are like, I have a new revelation. What about the revelation God has said? (laughs) What about the revelation God has given you in his word? Is that not sufficient? Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2. Here's a, another a fifth thing, keep in mind. A fifth qualification for a good interpreter is obedience to what God has already revealed. So uh, the Bible is the Word of God, and if that's the case, it's not a book simply for our comprehension, but it is a book that demands our devotion. Jesus would say this: John 7, verse 17, in your outline, Jesus taught, if anyone is willing to do his will, that's the will of the Father, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus said, if you were willing to do what God wanted you to do, you would know what God is saying, what God has revealed. According to Jesus, and we see this carried out in other passages of the Bible, there is a direct relationship between how you obey God's word and what you know from God's word. That means if you're saying to God, Lord, I'm not really interested in obeying this, I'm not willing to reconcile and make something right with my brother or sister and humble myself, confess my sin, but I really want to know your will for my life, and I'm seeking your word to know what You say, what this means or that means. Hey, look. Part of being a good interpreter is obeying what God has already revealed. That's the according to the parable Jesus gives in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. God gives more to those who are faithful with what he's already given. What are you doing with what God has already revealed to you? Number six. A sixth qualification for a good interpreter is an objective mindset. Proverbs 18, 13. Proverbs 18, 13 says this. He who gives... In answer, before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. We've all been guilty of that. We've all been guilty of thinking we understood something before we really looked at it. We've all been guilty of this idea at one time or another. Don't don't talk to me about the facts. My mind is already made up. But see, when you come to the Bible, you need to have an open mind. Now, we said before that, Nobody can come to the Bible as a blank slate. That's true. We have, inevitably, presuppositions. You have your own life experience. You can't, you can't deny that. But if you're aware of that, and if you will admit that, if you will be conscious of that, that will help you. Be an honest interpreter. Come to the Bible with an objective mindset. The way we could put it is, no man is perfectly neutral. You can't be. You all have a bias, right? Uh, if, you, if you're in a church that is Calvinistic in doctrine, you have a... Your approach looking at the Bible, those who come go to more Armidian churches, they certainly have their way of their mindset of looking at the Bible. And we can't be without any sort of prejudice. Right? You can't remove yourself from your presuppositions, but you can be objective. And so when we come to the Bible, it would help us is if we we try to think through both sides. And this is what I do when I talk to people that don't believe the Bible. I try to understand what they're saying. Okay, this is what this is what you think the text means. This is why you have a problem with it. Let me tell you now why that's incorrect. I remember a lady telling me, she was from a, a church of Christ that taught baptism, you know, was your salvation. You know, when you get baptized, then you, now you're going to heaven. If you weren't baptized, you're not going to heaven. And I'm just explaining the gospel to her, and she said this. She said, are you saying that you can tell somebody, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved? And I said, well, Paul said that, actually, in Romans 10, 13. And she said, nah, that doesn't. And See, she was close-minded to the scriptures. She wasn't open to, to reason. And so when we come to the Bible, we don't want to have our mind made up. We want to come with an open mind saying, Lord, what does the text say? And being willing to change. And that kind of leads us right into the seventh qualification here from scripture. Integrity to accept correction. Integrity to allow the scriptures to change us, to change our mindset. And uh, let me say this that if you have never had to ever change any doctrinal position, any, any interpretive matter in your life, then it may just be that you're not, you're not willing to accept correction. I've had to change my position as I've gotten to study the Bible at different times, and uh, I hope I'm right on all those things. You know, some things are harder than others. We'll see that's one of the principles of hermeneutics. Some things are difficult. Some things are easier to understand. But Proverbs 9, 8 and 9 says this. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. And so a mark of a wise man, a mark of a good interpreter, is going to be you're not saying, I'm infallible, right? I can't be wrong. No, you should be willing to accept correction. And this is just a part of understanding that we're not God, right? We're not immutable. We're not omniscient. uh, We are sinners. Uh, We can be prone to interpret the Bible in a way that appeals to our own selfish prejudice, our own selfish appetites. So we need the integrity to accept correction, even from God's word, or being willing to change our interpretation if the text should warrant that. Lastly, we'll add this from the scriptures. An eighth qualification for a good interpreter is diligence to study faithfully. Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make an ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek for her as silver. That's for this this wisdom, these words of God. And he says, and search for her as for hidden treasures, then... You will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. James tells us he gives it liberally. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Boy, that ought to be our heart. We ought to come to this book like we are on a treasure hunt. And we say, God, I'm I'm excited. Uh, I've said this before, but it's like there was some million dollars buried out in that field, that football field out there. I mean, you'd have everybody in Port Washington and all the surrounding towns coming and digging the whole thing up and looking for it because people do anything for money. But God's telling you there's treasure in his word. So how anxious are we? How diligent are we to come to his word and mine its truths? Second Corinthians 9 6 says, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So what are you putting into the word? How much time do you put into the word? How much attention? How interested are you? What you put into your effort to study the scriptures, interpret it, is in direct proportion to what you get out. That's interesting. Now, some will will hear all these sort of things, and I've I've talked to people from experience and heard these objections. They'll say, well, I hear all that. You know, I, I can see even from a couple weeks ago, we discussed the biblical basis for a study like this a study of how to interpret the Bible. and We saw there were, I think I gave you 12 reasons or something, so we saw a lot. But they'll say, what about prayer? And in fact, there are three, I have in your outline, three common excuses that really do not excuse us from studying hermeneutics, from studying how to interpret the Bible, but, but people will often revert to these sort of things. And the first is prayer. What about prayer? Someone might ask, well, why, why do I need to really study how to interpret the Bible properly? in order to understand the Bible, I mean, why can't I just simply pray and rely on God's spirit? And I would say this. I would say God is gracious. God isn't limited, right? God can give incredible understanding to somebody who doesn't have opportunities, all the opportunities to study his word like we do in this country where we've got freedom to do this and we can gather here without fear of persecution. So I'm not going to limit God, but I'm going to say this to you. If you're relying on prayer as an excuse not to study his word, you're in sin, all right? That's, that's laziness, Prayer is not a substitute for the word of God. Prayer is not a substitute for a faithful, diligent study of the word when God says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study the word. Be faithful. Prove yourself a faithful steward of God's word. Don't use prayer as an excuse. And this this was kind of a, well, I mean, it's still today, but uh, over 100 years ago during the time of B.B. Warfield at Princeton, there were different Christians saying, I'd rather spend... Ten minutes on my knees in prayer than ten hours in my study over the books, studying the Bible. Maybe you've heard something like that. I have. Uh, some will say, I had a Pentecostal friend I worked with once, he said, the best theology is neology. I thought, well, you certainly want neology, but does that, is, is that kind of like above everything else? What do you do with all the other doctrines of the faith? Well, this is how B.B. Warfield responded. Which is more valuable, 10 hours of study or 10 minutes on your knees? He said this. Nothing could be more fatal, however, than to set these two things over against one another. Recruiting officers do not dispute whether it is better for soldiers to have a right leg or a left leg. Soldiers should have both legs. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? Then 10 hours over your books on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books? Or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? In your case, there can be no either or. Either a student or a man of God. You must be both. That is so well said. And, and shame on any preachers or anyone who would try to drive a wedge between those two things. Uh, going back to the brief history of hermeneutics, it's the people who try to drive a wedge between your heart and your brain. And God made them both, and God commanded you to love him with both of those faculties. Your emotions, your heart, your mind, everything. Some will say, though, well, what about Holy Spirit guidance? Here's the second common excuse, the Spirit. They'll say, well, I have the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't need to study hermeneutics because we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And this is really drawing on several dangers. First, it pits truth against truth. It's true that the Holy Spirit does guide us. We acknowledge that. But that is the very reason that we should study how to interpret the Bible. The truth that the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us understand the Bible is not a truth that is at odds with God's commands in Scripture, like in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study Scripture diligently. You have to hold both those truths. Again, God is sovereign. You are responsible. Another error with this thinking is it begs the question. I've had people tell me, God told me what this text means. How do you argue with that? How do you argue with the mystic? Well, that's really not even a falsifiable claim. When somebody tells you, God told me this, what are you going to say? Well, God got it wrong. But that's the problem. They're begging the question. You're saying God told you that. Why don't you ask this question? What does God say in the text? That's the question. But they want to circumvent that process of studying the word. And so... People will often appeal to some kind of feeling they have, some experience they had, and they tell you, that's how I know what the text means. But what does the text say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to me? We have to follow this process. So we'll unpack that more as we go through the principles of hermeneutics. Some, when they say, I know what the text means because God told me, they're not only begging the question, they're excusing the possibility of being mistaken or misled. And that is what I encounter a lot, and and some of you that have worked with those in cults, or you have family members that are in a cult, you know what I'm talking about. I can't be mistaken. I talked to a Jehovah's Witness one time, and uh, we're talking about the truth. I don't need that. I have the truth. I said, well, would you be interested in that? And if it's the truth, you should be secure about the truth, not upsetting the truth that you know. And she's like, I already know the truth, so I don't look for it anymore. Whoa! I said, I need to record that. And, uh, that, that. But that's the mindset. They turn their mind off. Uh, I can't be misled. People that will appeal to the Holy Spirit as an excuse will sometimes come at Bible study with that mindset. Finally, I will say this. This kind of a bold claim. Well, I don't need to study how to study the Bible because I have the Holy Spirit. That ignores what the Scriptures teach us of another spirit. Is there anything in the Bible about another spirit? 1 John 4, right? Christian John 4, 1 through 3, test the spirits. How do you test the spirits? Well, first of all, you need to because there's God, right? And then there's the deceiving spirits. There's Satan. I mean, look at the Old Testament. New Testament are both plain. There's another spirit. Second Corinthians 11 even says the devil transforms himself into an angel of light. So how do we test the spirits? We need to. Well, by the objective eternal word of God. God is not going to go contrary. The spirit of God will not go contrary to what he has said. I'm so glad for the word of God. What about sincerity? That's the third excuse. Some will say, well, I just, I have such a good heart. Or that person, they have just such a good heart. There's no way they can be misled. The Bible says, Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so if you're going to say, Pastor, I just have a good heart. I just really mean well. Let me tell you, the road to hell is paved by good intentions. There's a way that seems right to a man, and the end of it are the ways of death. Please don't rely on how you feel, on sincerity. It's just not a legitimate excuse for not studying the word of God and how to study the word of God. I don't have time to get in all the presuppositions, but you'll see I have those listed there. I just want you to understand as we go through this course, we're not going to be talking about like theology proper or pneumatology, anthropology, bibliology. Of course, some of those things will, will uh, come upon us. But for the sake of this course and how to interpret the Bible, we are presupposing God exists. He's designed us in his image. That means we can think in terms of words just like God does. Uh, God has revealed himself through his written revelation, the Bible, so that every word is infallible and errant. And God has given us his own spirit to his people to assist them in understanding his words. And I'll just add this. At the end, I think I have there the accommodation principle. In hermeneutics, we recognize that the infinite transcendent God, who is almighty, he's so great, there is nothing in creation like him, right? There's nothing quite like God. He is almighty. He's he's transcendent, but... God has revealed himself in such a way that we can understand him truly. And so in that little blank there, I have the accommodation principle acknowledges that our creator has accommodated his revelation of himself to our feeble minds so that we might have an analogous, though accurate, understanding of who he is and what he is like. So there's nothing in creation like God. That's why our knowledge of him is analogous in scripture. And yet... It is accurate. Another way you could say it, though there is a different nuance, is that our knowledge of God is limited, though it is reliable. John Calvin said, God lips; he lisps to us in Scripture. When a two-year-old child asks you, why, 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 you have to use words he or she can understand. And it's hard, right? Well, praise God. God brings his revelation down on a level that we can understand by his grace with his help. So I'll have to end right there. There's some questions on the back that you can look at, think about in your own time. Let's pray.